Hello, thank you for listening to this podcast. I thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to be a supporter of this podcast and uh, if this is of benefit to you, please go to patreon.com slash timothyyap and we'll be uh, we'll love to hear from you and we'd love to have your support. It's patreon.com slash timothyyap. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Thank you and God bless you. Father, we come on this very somber and solemn morning to remember you and your son's sacrifice. Father, right now as we come to listen to your word, as we relive these last moments of your son, Father, we just want to pause and reflect upon these last moments. Give us insights as we look again afresh into the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we will be staggered, that we will be amazed, that we will be pricked to turn back to you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Today, N.T. Wright is one of the most well-known New Testament scholars and an archbishop in England. But when he was a young boy, he was pretty mischievous. Together with some of his mates, they decided to visit a church nearby. They made an appointment with the pastor and decided to put a prank on the pastor. So the three boys went and met with the pastor. And the three boys said, yesterday, they said that with excitement, we had a fight in the alleyways. And while we were fighting in the alleyways, one of our mates got killed. And it sounded so real that the pastor was full and the pastor was extremely disturbed that somebody was killed in the in, in near the church and was deep in thought and trouble as to what the next steps were how to counsel these boys and then the boys when they saw the pastor deep in thought they began laughing at the pastor and said ah, that was just a joke and then they all left as they were the two boys were leaving the pastor grabbed on to anti Wright's hand he was the only one that did not leave. The pastor held on to this young man and said, I want to talk to you. I want you right now to walk to the far end of the church, look at the cross, and I want you to say these words three times. You did this all for me, and I don't care. Walk to the cross and do that three times. So Auntie Wright kept laughing as a mischievous teenager and said, of course I can do that. So he walked to the far end of the church, to the cross, and he said, you did this all for me and I don't care. And then he walked again uh, back to the cross and then he said, you did this all for me and I don't care. And for the last time, the rebellious teenager walked to the cross and he couldn't say it. There were tears in his eyes. And that afternoon changed his whole life forever. One looked at the cross and was different. When John Patton, a young lad of 19 years old, stood before his congregation and said to this congregation that the Lord has sent him to the new Hebrews tribe, whereby he would be ministering there for, as a missionary. He asked his congregation to support him. One man by the name of Mr. Dixon rode up, stood up in the congregation meeting and said to young uh, John Patton and said, 
Don't go, you'll be eaten by cannibals. To which uh, John Patton replies, Mr. Dixon, you are well advanced in years and your prospect is soon to be in the grave. There you'll be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die in serving and honoring the Lord Jesus Christ, it will make no difference whether I'll be eaten by cannibals or by worms. But in that great day, my resurrection body will, be fu- will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of my risen redeemer. Why is it that John Patton, despite what the elders said to him, could go to the cannibals and preach Christ? That he would rather let the cannibals eat him alive than worms in a grave? Because he saw the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is it about the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ that changed people's lives around? That selfish people who once lived for themselves, who lived for fun, could give their lives to Jesus as a New Testament scholar, as John Patton gave his life as a missionary to have his flesh eaten by the cannibals. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to look at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning. I want you, invite you to look at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning too. Because on the first Good Friday, there was a Roman centurion who, when we was, saw the whole event of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, and something happened to him too. The passage James has just read for us, you see that when he saw the crucifixion of everything that went through, he himself said, surely this must be the Son of God. So what did these people see on the cross? Let's look into this passage closer that James has just read to us in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 20, chapter 27 tells us that just moments before Jesus died, in Matthew 27 verse 46, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Laba Sabatani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when others said, heard this, they said, He is calling Elijah. But what is very interesting is that just before Jesus died, the people were saying, let him call Elijah. He's calling Elijah. But what is very interesting is that the moment Jesus died, we're told in verse 31 that the earth shook. Is this significant? If you remember your Old Testament well, in 1 Kings chapter 19, you'll remember that Elijah himself was the prophet who was driven to despair. And just like Jesus went up the mountain to be crucified in Golgotha, Elijah went up the mountain called Horeb. And at a time when he thought that God had deserted him, what was God's sign that gave Elijah the confidence and the assurance that God was still with him? It was an earthquake. The people were saying, he's calling Elijah. But Jesus didn't even ask for Elijah. But God loved Jesus so much that the moment he died, God gave him that assurance he once gave Elijah. There was an earthquake. 
So what did the, the centurion see the cross? He saw that God loves Jesus very much. Jesus never even actually asked for Elijah. But the moment when he died, God sent him the assurance of Elijah. It's very interesting, just before Jesus died, some of the soldiers were there and they wanted to feed Jesus some cheap vinegar. Jesus never even asked for water in, and when he was in the cross. But it calls to mind if you read, if you know the Old Testament, Moses when he was in the wilderness and the people were asking and crying out for water. And Moses was so desperate that he took his uh, uh, rod and hit the rocks and their water gushed out. And just, and what is very interesting is just before Jesus died, Jesus never even asked for water. But because God loves Jesus so much. What did God do at the moment after Jesus died? We are told that the rocks split. The rocks were ripped apart. The Greek word says it's like as if two hands were there and ripped them apart. God gave Jesus that assurance that he was with him. As he gave, once gave Moses. Why did God do that? Because Jesus, God loves Jesus very much. God will do anything for Jesus. And what is Jesus doing for us now? Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says that Jesus right now is praying for us. Philip Yancey in his book on prayer says, In the three active years of Jesus, Jesus changes the moral landscape of the planet with his teaching. But for the next 2,000 years, he's been doing the same thing with another tactic, and that is prayer. Because God loves Jesus so much, Jesus right now is praying for us. Even when I'm preaching, he is praying for us. That every prayer that we pray right now, Jesus takes it and intercedes it before God. And God will not say no to Jesus because he loves Jesus so much. That's why we as Christians have the confidence to pray. That's why we as Christians are different from all other religions of the world because we do not just pray to God. Jesus takes our prayers and Hebrews chapter 7 says, and verse 25 says that he intercedes or he takes our prayers and brings them to the Father. And notice how God loves Jesus and will not say no to him. I was a fan of uh, author and Christian author Tony Campolo. I used to love his books and I used to buy and read every book that Tony Campolo used to put up. When I was in Canada, I was serving in a church there and our church partner with the Christian Pregnancy Center nearby. The Christian Pregnancy Center is a center that offers help to teenage girls who are, who are pregnant outside of marriage. <coughs> and our church supported that ministry. So I became friends with the director of the ministry. And the pregnancy center had a fundraising event, and they invited all of us to attend. And guess who was speaking at the event? Tony Campolo. So I got my ticket from the director of the pregnancy center, and I didn't really think much about it until I went to the, uh, to the event, the fundraising uh, lunch. And when I got to the event, I went to my seat, because it was all seat assigned. And guess where I was sitting? Just next to Tony Campolo. Did you think 
that it happened by chance? Out of all the 500 over attendees in the, on, on, on that day, did you think that happened by chance? No. Somebody was working behind the scenes in order to allow me to make me sit beside Tony Campolo so that I could talk to him. It's the same way when we as Christians pray. God loves Jesus so much that when we pray, Jesus takes our prayers and works behind the scenes so that our prayers get answered. When your prayers get answered so seamlessly, do you think that it happened by chance? Do you think that you are just mere lucky? No, because Jesus is interceding for us. He's pulling strings for us. He's praying for us. And when he prays, God cannot refuse because God loves Jesus very much. So the very first thing that we see at the cross is that God loves Jesus very much. That even without asking, God assured Jesus with some of the greatest promises there on the cross. But there is a second thing that we see at the cross. Not only does God love Jesus very much, but God loves us even more. Look with me at Matthew 27 verse 51. The very moment when Jesus died, what happened? At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In the, the temple in Jerusalem, there were two sets of curtains or two sets of veil. One is at the entrance of the holy place and uh, the other is in the entrance of the Holy of Holies. Scholars debate as to which curtain uh, Matthew is talking about right here. But since the Roman centurion who was standing afar could see the curtain being torn in two, my guess, and many New Testament scholars guess, is that it refers to the outer veil of the temple in the, in the holy place. Anyway, regardless of which curtain was being torn into, the tearing of this temple veil is a big deal, right? Let's say if somebody were to bomb the White House in Washington, D.C. this morning, do you think it's a big deal? The White House isn't just a building. It represents the political power of the U.S. and perhaps the entire world. So if you have a terrorist who will bomb the White House this morning, it will be such a big deal that all the newspapers will be reporting on it, right? Every newspaper in the U.S., every newspaper in Australia, every newspaper in India will be, uh, will be talking about this for days and weeks to come. To tear the temple veil in Jerusalem is not a small matter. So let's put the Bible to the test. If Jesus' death really caused the temple veil to be torn from top to bottom, is this really true? Did this really happen? Because this is a big deal. Did any of the Jewish people who are not Christians actually report on this event? Because it's a big deal, right? You are tearing the, what is at the heart of Jewish faith, the temple. And Matthew says that the death of Jesus, the temple veil was being torn in two. So is the Bible true? Is the Bible making this up or did the resurrection of, and death of Jesus never really happen? So if this is really true, the Jewish writings would definitely mention this. And let me tell you, the answer is, it is true. I have looked at five Jewish 
sources. And all five Jewish sources mentioned or hinted at the fact that something happened on that first Good Friday. These are Jewish sources. They're not Christians. They will not cohort with Christians. They're enemies of Christians. They will not join forces with Matthew to, to lie to us. So this is what the Jewish sources say. All five of them, major Jewish sources, agree that 40 years before the temple was destroyed, a strange event occurred. It was around AD 30, so around the time probably when Jesus died. One afternoon, there was an earthquake, Josephus tells us that. Josephus even mentions that the earthquake happened at the sixth hour, which is, corresponds very much to our uh, 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 New Testament accounts. And around the sixth hour, something happened. There was an earthquake, Josephus tells us. The Jewish Talmud also tells us. There was an earthquake that happened. And the earthquake was so violent that the temple doors in Jerusalem opened, were flung open. Let me tell you that the temple doors in Jerusalem are not your flimsy doors that you get at Bunnings. No, 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 no. Uh, Josephus tells us that the temple doors are so huge that every morning it takes eight Eight Jewish men to open these doors. But on that particular afternoon, the temple doors were flung open. But there is more. The earthquake caused so much damage that Josephus tells us that when the Romans marched into the temple in AD 70, they found a lot of materials that the Jews were using to repair what? The curtain. The curtain was somehow torn. And a very authoritative Jewish text, not Christian at all, called The Lives of the Prophet, it even mentions that one of the damages was that the temple veil was destroyed. In all five Jewish sources, they all agreed that something happened about the time of AD 30, that caused disruption to the temple. And they all attribute, especially the Tosafa, uh, uh, all attribute to the fact that perhaps a great rabbi died that morning. That caused that earthquake and things to happen without people understanding. Because one of the things that the earthquake caused is that the menorah lamps in the Holy of Holies was being blown off. It never ever happened before in the temple's history. So they all believed that some great rabbi must have died for the menorah to be blown off like that. But they would not obviously say it's Jesus. So all five sources, the Jerusalem Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, Josephus' War of the Jews, the Tosafta, and the Lives of the Prophet, all first-class, reputable Jewish documents say that the temple veil was indeed somehow destroyed. What does this say to us? The tearing of the temple veil was not made up by Christians. That this really did happen. That the, the, the enemies of Jesus would not have recorded this. But why was the veil torn? What is the significance of the tearing of the veil? What is the veil like? I think that will unlock why the veil needs to be torn. 
Josephus tells us that the veil is 60 feet long, 20 feet wide, 4 inches thick. So it's a very thick uh, veil. It took 300 priests to make this veil, to stitch this veil together. What was the color of the veil? It was mainly blue in color and with some splatters of purple. The veil was supposed to represent the sky. The purple was supposed to represent the sea and signify the sea. There were threads of red to signify the earth. The veil actually was supposed to be the cosmos, the entire universe. So why is it that when Jesus died, the veil needs to be torn in two? What is the significance of that? Matthew's gospel tells us very clearly why that needs to happen. At the start of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 3 verse 16, the very first instance when we see Jesus in public ministry, Jesus was being baptized. And when he got out of the baptismal waters, he saw the heavens being torn open and God speaking to him. But at his death, he tears again the whole heavens and the earth so that we can have full access to God. So that everything that belongs to God now is ours. God tears the heavens and the earth apart with his bare hands and say that right now everything I have right now is yours because of my son. So what does the tearing of the veil mean? It means that Jesus, God loves us so much, even more than his son, that he's willing to sacrifice his son, that right now the entire heavens and earth are being torn apart, that right now he can pour out all his blessings upon us. He loves us that much. And that is why the Apostle Paul can write in Romans chapter 8 verse 31, He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also along with him graciously now give us all things? So the cross what, what does this signify? It means that God has given us everything. There is now no hindrance between him and us. The veil which represents the universe, the entire cosmos is being torn apart. And this is not just made up by Christians. Even the enemies of Christians testify that this truly did happen. It really did happen. Why? Because God loves us so much. He's willing to pour everything on us. Everything. Kim Hawthrey is an Australian economist, but also a prominent Christian who has written a number of books through Matthias Media. In one of his books, Kim talks about a time when he was visiting Sydney. He was driving his car during the peak hours as he was crossing the Sydney Harbour Bridge. To cross the Sydney Harbour Bridge, you have to pay a toll. At the time, it was $3. Not sure what it is right now. You have to pay a toll of $3. As he was approaching the toll, Kim realized that he had forgotten his own wallet. It was in the rush hour time, so there were lots of cars around him. He couldn't make a U-turn. So a sudden fear and panic got into his mind. What was he to do? He was facing this toll. This toll was coming up. And what was he do? He has no money and he doesn't have his wallet with him. 
So frantically, while he was still driving, he searched, put his hand into the glove box of his uh, car and started to scramble to see if there are any coins there. And it was three dollars. So are there any coins there? So in between red lights, he would reach out and empty uh, the glove box money into his own hands. And then he started counting while he was driving, whether he had three dollars. And lo and behold, he counted his money. And it was two Five cents short of three dollars. It was pretty close. So Kim thought about um, he should devise a plan. He will just tell the toll booth manager or the toll booth officer that he has done his best, that he would need just a 295, that was the best he could do. It was just five cents. Come on, we're all Aussies, he would see was thinking. We're known to chill as a cultural, as, as part of our culture and to take it easy. Well, five cents, I'm sure that's okay. So he thought that his plan would work. So finally he got to the toll booth, he lowered his windows and told his story. Kim was confident that the officer at the toll booth would be okay with just $2.95, just five cents, and let him go. The officer listened intently to, the, to his story, and then the officer said, You can't just nearly pay the toll. Either you pay in full, or you don't pay. Kim pleaded and pleaded and pleaded, and the officer repeated his answer. You can't nearly pay the toll. Either you pay in full, or you don't pay. And then the officer said, if you can't pay, then I'll take down your registration number, and I'll issue you an invoice for a hefty fine. And that was the end of the story. God could have just given a little bit of himself. Oh, you need three dollars. I'll just give you two ninety-five. Figure out the five cents yourself. But God doesn't. Other religions will only promise you two ninety-five. Then you figure out, do good, do all these good things, and then the next five percent leave it in the mercy of God. But what happens if the gods are like the toll booth officer? But that's not the way with Jesus. When he died. The Father gave us all things. Not just $2.95, not just $3, but everything. So that when you come to the end of your life, He will just accept you because He has given you everything as you profess faith and repentance in Him. That's how much God loves us. That's why N.T. Wright, when he looked at the cross, his heart was changed. That's why John Patton, when he looked at the cross, was not afraid of the cannibals. Because God has given him everything. What about you and me? Look to the cross. What do you see there? Father, as we come before you this morning... We bow our hearts before you. Firstly, Father, we thank you that the cross was not made up by Christians in the first century. The supernatural events actually did happen at the death of Jesus. That this really did happen because the enemies of Jesus would not have written about it if it were not true. 
Josephus was not a Christian by any stretch of the imagination. But yet he spoke boldly about what happened on the first Good Friday. God has torn the curtain in two because he loves us more, even more than his son. Yes, he loves his son. He listens to every word the son says, even before he asks. But he loves us even more. God has torn the universe for you and me. So he has lavished to us everything. How are you going to respond? Are you going to say, He's done all this for me and I don't care? Or are you going to come to Him and say, Lord, I give of my life to You. I repent of my sins and turn to You in faith. What is your response this morning? There is something powerful about the cross. That's why the Roman centurion, when he saw the cross, was even moved to say, surely this was the Son of God. What about you? As we respond to him through the singing of our next song, Make this your prayer to Him, that you want to come to Him, to praise Him, to honor Him, to give your life to Him. Father, work your ways in your people right now. As I hand now your people to you, as your word has already been spoken, Lord God, do your mighty work in your people. In Jesus' name, Amen.